the fact remains that most people don't know what a board does, let alone who's on it, even for the companies that they work for. So we decided to take our message to the masses, educate women about what it takes to get on a board, and advocate companies to add more women onto their boards. Welcome to MIT Catalysts, a podcast series by the MIT Club of Northern California. I'm Irina Huang, producer of the podcast. Each episode, host Julia Yu interviews MIT alumni, faculty, and affiliates who are movers and shakers. A quick note before I introduce this episode. If you've been following our podcast, you'll know that it's a volunteer-run labor of love. And Julia and I do our best to release an episode per month while also working our day jobs. We expected to put this episode out in late March, but then the horrific shooting in Atlanta and multiple instances of anti-Asian violence around the country happened. As Asian Americans, Julia and I both had to take a minute to process these events that really hit close to home. We want to thank you, our listeners, for your unwavering support at this time, and we want to affirm that we at MIT Catalyst stand behind fighting for a better world, one story at a time. Now, in today's episode, Julia interviews Stephanie Sonnebend, former CEO and president of Senesta International Hotels Corporation, and co-founder and chair of the advocacy campaign 5050 Women on Boards. As you'll hear, Stephanie cares deeply about equality in management. It's an obsession guided by her personal core values, and it grew out of her own experience climbing the ranks of Senesta International. Stephanie tells Julia about a mind-bogglingly wide gamut of professional challenges, from environmental issues to employee well-being and even keeping the family peace. We are excited to have MIT Sloan alum Stephanie Sonnebend with us today. I met Stephanie back when I was at MIT Sloan, and she was our keynote speaker at the Sloan Women in Management Conference. Stephanie is a former CEO and president of Senesta International Hotels Corporation, and she is also the co-founder and chair of 2020 Women on Boards. Thank you for being with us, Stephanie. Great to be with you. Well, I want to start with your experience at Senesta. So your grandfather founded Senesta International Hotels in the 40s. What was your personal journey to the hospitality management industry? Was it something that you always knew and thought you would go into? Or uh, did you have other goals in mind when you were going to business school and coming out? So when I went to Sloan in the 70s, I thought I wanted to start a career in solar energy. But after doing some research, I realized that the industry needed engineers and wasn't ready for someone with a liberal arts business background. So when I graduated, my father started doing a major recruiting job. He was the CEO of Senesta at the time. And so I told him I was ambitious, but he, because there were very few women in leadership positions, he said he didn't know what that meant for, for a woman. So I responded that I wanted his job one day and planned to have a full-time career along with eventually having a family. And he agreed. So, uh, so I joined the semester right out of business school. So you went to business school and entered an industry during a time when women were very much a minority. What was that like? Well, business school was predominantly men. Uh, so I'd been used to being in a minority position. 
it was challenging, but equally challenging was coming in as being the daughter of the CEO. Because you can imagine people would either you know, disregard what I had to say, wouldn't take me seriously, uh, or on the other hand, would tell me things that they hoped would get to my father. So it took me a while to establish my credibility, uh, especially when they realized that neither of those two things were, uh, were true. But once I established myself, then I think people really took me seriously and, uh, and I successfully worked my way up throughout the organization. That's great. You know, you've held various leadership roles at Senesta, including vice president of marketing, president and CEO. And you said that it was a journey to establish yourself. Looking back, what has been some of your memorable moments? So early on in my career at Senesta, we documented the company's core values and guiding principles. And I decided at the same time to create my own three personal guiding principles, which were first, to contribute to people's lives, second, transformational change, and third, advancing women. And one of my most memorable moments was focused on transformational change when I took on the task of making Egypt more environmentally conscious. We had a number of hotels in Egypt at the time, and I started having conversations with the Sinesta local management there about cleaning up debris and not injuring the coral reefs because before that boats would, dive boats would just go and anchor in the coral reefs. So I had to start having these conversations in meetings uh, and we got to the point where other hotels joined in uh, they adopted roadways and created annual Earth Day. But I think the thing that what I was most proud about was an Egyptian owner of the hotel heard about the conversation we were having, and one of them offered to pay for a buoy system in the Red Sea. And so they installed a buoy system in coordination with the Egyptian government so that dive boats stopped destroying the coral reefs there. So I'm not claiming I was directly responsible for saving the coral reefs in the Red Sea, although I do believe just having the conversations helped raise environmental consciousness. And this is a time when sustainability wasn't really a hot topic. So this was something that, um, you know, you, you really were an early change agent here. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. And, and again, from a tourism point of view, it's obviously very self-serving because tourists don't want to go to a country that doesn't have regards for, uh, for the environment. So, uh, yeah, really worked out. Why did you choose Egypt? Well, that's where we had a big presence. Uh, at the peak, we had seven hotels and six Nile cruise ships. Even though we were a small company elsewhere, Uh, especially in the United States, we were quite a large company in Egypt. And so it was a place that we could have a real impact. And I love Egypt. The people are some of the most warm and friendly people I've ever met. Now, you led Sinesta through multiple business cycles, which the hospitality industry is especially susceptible to. How did you lead teams through the various ups and downs? 
So my uncle had a great expression. He said, when times are tough, no one can imagine that they'll be good again. And when times are good, they forget that they, that they may not stay that way. And the only thing we do know is that things will change. Uh, and so what's really important, I discovered, was to have a longer-term perspective and plan for the next up or the next down. And we also need to be very honest with people and engage them in decisions. So let me give you and your audience an example of a moral dilemma, which we faced during times of uh, crises. Uh, so after 9-11, when the hotel business really, really dropped, uh, not quite as significantly as it dropped uh, this last year, but it was, uh, there was certainly a lack of, lack of business. And so we had to decide. Um, and let me just give you an example. Suppose you have 10 housekeepers on staff, but only enough work uh, for five of them, full, full time. What do you do? Do you lay off five people and give the other five a full-time job? Or do you give all 10 people half-time job? And those were some of the, just an example, very simple example of the crises that we were dealing with and the decisions we were having to make all along in the hospitality industry. Uh, and again, and you, it's not just about a financial decision, at least not for me. We also have to consider, again, my core values of, uh, and principles of contributing to people's lives and really say, okay, which way would be more beneficial? And it's not an easy question, especially when you consider if you put everyone at, under, at that point under 30 hours a week then do they qualify for their health benefits? Uh, if, you do, if you were to lay off those five people, could they then collect unemployment? And so supplement, you know, uh, or go out and look for another job. But also, a lot of it also would depend on what, how soon you felt the business was coming back. Because again, you wouldn't want to terminate employees and then not be able to get them back when business improved. Uh, yet at the same time, there's a big commitment to trying to give people living wages. Could you share what ultimately happened during this particular downturn when you're faced with this issue? So what we did was somewhat of a hybrid. We, we laid off a few of those people in order to be able to make sure that those that we kept were able to get uh, qualify for benefits, because again, that was really important to us to make sure that, the, that they maintain their, uh, their health insurance. This sounds very familiar to the types of decisions that businesses are making today and have had to throughout this pandemic. So I actually want to shift to uh, the current pandemic we're in. Almost every industry has been impacted one way or another, especially the hospitality industry. As an industry veteran yourself, what changes did you observe uh, to be the most difficult for the hospitality industry over the past year? So the really most difficult for the hospitality industry, and in many ways other industries today as well, is the level of uncertainty. So, so you know, for example, for the hospitality industry, when will people be able to have large weddings again or other social events? 
And you've, you've got to consider that weddings are usually booked a year in advance. And then with businesses, when will business and associations start having meetings again? How do you give people living wages, and especially in the jobs that are very depending on guests? For example, the restaurant workers, the banquet staffs, uh, and housekeeping. And from a financial perspective, most hotels are not generating enough revenue to pay expenses and debt service. So there are major challenges with the real estate as well. Absolutely. And it sounds like your guiding principles you mentioned earlier, uh, you're still applying that lens about transformational change and how you think about the employees' lives. Now, when you came up with these guiding principles, was this something that you built up over time? Did it evolve? Or was it just, you know, you always knew these were the guiding principles and then you've been able to stick by them? Well, that, I would say that they, they certainly evolved. And I, I, I quite honestly don't remember how clear they were for me way back when, when I created them. But I knew that this was how I wanted to operate my career, keeping uh, those principles in mind, as we did at Senesta. Senesta had its own guiding principles, uh, and we always looked at our decisions for the company through the lens of those guiding principles as well. I want to go back to being part of a family business in a sense, and you touched on two things, uh, establishing yourself both as your own leader outside of your father and your uncle, and also as a woman um, when, when you're still very much a minority in this space. Are there certain things that you wish you would have known then that you know now? I wish I had known how uh, how much unconscious bias was there in in the workplace that I really wasn't all that aware of at the time. I was just very focused on on my career and uh, moving forward and didn't really pay much attention to those people who were you know, making derogatory comments about me because I was a woman or, uh, or not treating me as seriously or talking over me, th- those sorts of things. I didn't really have much awareness of that at the time. And I think looking back at it, I think I would have treated some of those situations somewhat differently. Uh, mainly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been confrontive so much, but I would have at least acknowledged the misbehavior on, on part of some of my male colleagues. Uh, and almost as a way to help them see it, because again, what I realized is uh, when they're making derogatory comments about me, it, reflects, it doesn't necessarily reflect badly on me as much as it reflects badly on them. And, and I was always a big proponent of women, so... Early on, we brought in women uh, and in the organization and promoted them to senior level positions. And so that was great. So after a while, I was no longer alone. What has been some of your favorite uh, things about being in the hotel industry? I imagine that there's some core things that 
are still the same um, as when you entered as now. And then the industry landscape has certainly changed with, uh, you know, Airbnb, VRBO and other players coming on the market. But I'm just curious, what attracted you to the industry and where did you find passion? So I love learning about different cultures. And and in our in the hotel industry, we have opportunity for lots of different cultures working within just one ho- hotel itself. So you've got the you get to learn the cultures of the employees, both in that country, but also immigrants to that place. You also get to learn about the cultures of all the guests who can come from all over the world. And I just found that fascinating. Uh, And also found it really inspiring to figure out how to integrate Senesta culture, because we had a very strong culture within the organization, how to integrate that into a particular hotel. And can you tell us a little bit more about what the culture of Senesta, what, what does that mean when you say the Senesta culture? So one of our uh, major core values was to treat everyone with dignity and respect. And so we had to make sure that, that our managers would treat employees throughout the organization, all the way down to the person who's sweeping the floor, he or she deserved the same amount of dignity and respect that, uh, that the general manager does. Well, that is a hard... Uh, cultural shift for for people who are very much used to being in a more hierarchical environment. You touched on the concept of failure and learning from failure. Are, are there other examples or moments you would like to share where at the time it felt like, wow, this is a mistake, but in hindsight, it was a great lesson or stepping stone? <laughs> Well, let me give you a, a major failure, uh, which wasn't a, necessarily our cost, but uh, with Hurricane Katrina, when we had two hotels in New Orleans at the time, and when Hurricane Katrina hit, we had to figure out how to locate over 600 people who had been totally displaced uh, and try and find them around the country and you know, give them access because many of them had no access to any cash. Their banks were closed and they, and they were totally uh, relocated. So, so there's an example. Again, it wasn't a mistake on our part, uh, but it was a disaster and that we were really able to turn around and we set up a call center and put uh, notices on our website to if, to, if you're an employee, call this number. We, we will send, send, we decided we would send every um, employee who contacted us, us $200 uh, that they could repay out of their next, out of their paycheck. We also had to figure out how to make the payroll because again, the payroll was all literally underwater in New Orleans and so we had to figure out how to get uh, that and figure out who had direct deposit and how to get checks to people. It was a whole big mess. But, but the, what turned into a success about that was the, just by doing those steps, 
the loyalty of our employees was amazing. So that when we did reopen the hotels, about 70% of the employees returned. And the remaining 30% didn't because they had decided not to uh, move back to New Orleans. And so it was really out of that uh, turning a disaster around that ended up being very beneficial for us. And it just really made us realize how important it is to, when there's a crisis of any type, to plan as much as you can, but then just expect the unexpected uh, and, uh, and meet regularly to manage those, uh, the unexpected. Everything from hurricanes, floods, uh, terrorist attacks. We, had, we lost over 30 guests uh, at a terrorist, uh, as a result of a terrorist attack in Egypt. That was very, very uh, stressful, as you could imagine. Wow, that's devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the qualities of those who succeed in hospitality? It sounds like adaptability and resilience is key qualities. Are there other qualities that come to mind when you think of who and what type of people succeed in the industry? The main group of people who succeed are people who love being around other people because it's, it's a very social environment and there's constant uh, opportunity to interact with other people. The other thing that's wonderful is that certainly in management uh, um, and some of the, and, and many, many jobs uh, in the hospitality industry, every day is different. You, you know, there's a different group coming in, there's a different set of people coming in, the, the, the occupant, occupancy level, there's a lot of moving parts. And I, I like to liken hotels to uh, a, sy- a symphony orchestra where you have everyone doing different tasks, but the goal is for it to all work in harmony. Both the people who are working you know, in the, what we call the front of the house, which are the uh, employees who interact with guests, and then there's a whole other group of people in the heart of the house, or the back of the house, where who are doing food prep or and you know maintenance or you know HR support. There's a whole other group of people who are equally as important as the guest facing ones and have to work harmoniously with everybody else. And oftentimes people fall into hospitality jobs. Yes, there are those who realize that they want to you know, go to hospitality school and want to be in hospitality, right? For the, but more often than not, it's one of the first jobs out of school that people have, and they fall in love with it and decide to make a career. And it sounds like, Stephanie, um, you, you fell in love with it? Absolutely. The contributing to people's lives core value really did exist for me uh, when I was graduating from undergraduate school. That was what I decided that uh, kind of what I wanted to do. And, but it wasn't until I was in uh, the hospitality industry that I realized what a better place to contribute to people's lives than in the hospitality industry where we had, you know, 3,500 employees 
who were making a living, you know, serving guests. And what a better, so I'm contributing to the employees' lives and we're also contributing to all those guests' lives who have had a, who have a wonderful experience at a Sinesta hotel. And did you enjoy working with family members and with, with your father? I know, you know, some people that's a deal breaker, but it's a double-edged sword. So curious to hear how your experience was. So at the peak, I worked with nine of my relatives. My father, two uncles, three siblings, uh, no, two siblings and four cousins. Wow. And I used to say I have, I have two jobs, <laughs> running the company and, and keeping peace in the family, and I don't have to tell you which one is harder. <laughs> so fortunately, for the most part, we all got along. Some of us thought very differently about situations. Uh, and uh, it got increasingly difficult with my, especially with my father as he was aging. Also an MIT alum, uh, although he did the reverse. He went to MIT undergraduate and then Harvard Business School. Probably of all the, he was the most challenging, especially when the internet came on. Um, and, and again, and as you can imagine, travel was one of the first places where people were heavily using the internet. And he just did not understand. And so that was a, a difficult transition uh, for him to embrace uh, having things be all on, online. And that created some, uh, some tension, shall we say, because he was well into his 70s at that point. I want to ask you about the tail end of your time at Senesta. So in January of 2012, you successfully completed the sale of the company, which involved taking the management company private and selling off the hotel asset. What was that experience like? Well, the negoti- they approached us in March of 2011, and it took us until the end of, I guess, February 1st, technically, of 2012 to close the deal. So it was a long courtship there, but they were consistently interested uh, throughout that, that time. So again, being a public company, there are all sorts of rules and regulations about how much information you make public when. And so there was a whole little, you know, for better word, dance going on there about when we could tell employees, when we could tell the public. And we were really clear that we, we were conscious of leaks, but we were also conscious that we didn't want our employees to hear it from the street, so to speak, before they heard it directly from us. So again, and then there was a whole level of uncertainty about you know, would, what employees they would keep and whether they'd still have jobs. Uh, and how do we make them less nervous about change? Because again, this was a company that had been in the family uh, for 60 years. So, uh, so it was a big change. And one of the things at Sinesta is most of our employees were long-term employees. And so we knew this would, there'd be a lot of nervousness and the, uh, among them, and so really trying to orchestrate that as we're trying to to lead the company and finalize the transaction. 
I want to shift gears now. I know that you've been involved with other activities outside of management, including 2020 Women on Boards, which is now 5050 Women on Boards, which advocates for more women on corporate boards, which you founded in 2010. What motivated you to launch this and how is it going? <laughs> so in 2010, when Giro and I founded 2020 Women on Boards, the percentage of women on U.S. company boards had been stagnant for over 10 years. And only 10.6% of the board seats on the Russell 3000 companies, which are the largest public companies in the United States, so only 10.6% of the seats were held by women. And so we realized we needed to do things differently. And so what we decided to do was create a campaign with a goal to get to 20% by 2020. We created a definition of diversity, which was a minimum of 20%. We decided to, that we needed to hold companies accountable. So we created a directory, which still exists today, at, now at 5050wob.com, where you can go on and see the number of women uh, and the number of board seats of companies on the Russell 3000 list. And then finally, we realized we needed to create visibility for the issue. Because the fact remains is that most people don't know what a board does, let alone who's on it, even for the companies that they work for. So we decided to take our message to the masses, educate women about what it takes to get on a board, and advocate companies to add more women onto their boards. And fortunately, we were successful. How do you feel about the legislation in California around women and minorities on boards? So initially we said, well, we weren't necessarily advocating for a quota system uh, because we just felt it wasn't going to work, especially in the United States, even though a lot of European countries had moved towards, uh, towards that. But then California was big and bold. And in fact, our current CEO of 5051 on boards was a big uh, advocate of the legislation in California. And we, so we, and we were thrilled that they passed it because our attitude now is whatever it takes. It's the right business decision. It's the right financial decision for businesses. Time and time again, major studies have shown that companies with diverse boards outperform those with all male boards. Uh, and so we're, we're really happy that uh, California has moved in that direction and has sent a message to other states uh, to really look at this, at this issue, as well as now the second piece of legislation around diversity. And so we're really focused on advocate, advocating for women of color as well, figuring, okay, now's their time, and we want to make sure that uh, as many women and women of color are, get on to corporate boards. Thank you so much for leading such an important initiative. Getting on boards is a black box for many. What advice do you have for professionals in general who are trying to get on a board? Okay, so I would suggest four basic things to do for people to better position themselves to get on a board one day. 
And again, these apply to both men and women. Even though we focus on training and helping women, they're equally applied to men as well. The first one is to become an expert in something boards want. So this could be financial expertise, cybersecurity, global operations, just to name a few. The second is to get experience on a board so, you, so that you understand how boards work. And this could be through a nonprofit board, an industry association board, government commissions, private companies, any type of board of that sort. The third thing is to increase your visibility. And you, people can do this by writing articles, speaking at conferences, uh, taking on challenges that in, um, and visible assignments, or joining affinity groups, such as alumni associations. And then fourth, it's really working your network. Let people know that you're want to be on, seeking to be on a board one day, ask people to give you feedback on your credentials, and then especially don't forget to ask your contacts how you can help them. And, I, and those are kind of the basic four uh, guidelines I would suggest for people who might want to get on a board. And if you're a woman or a person of color, now is especially good time to begin that board search because boards are looking for diversity. Uh, it's become really important. And at 50-50 Women on Boards, we offer two programs for women. One for board-ready women and one for mid-career women that will help position themselves to get on a board. One for board-ready women is a six-hour program, and the one for mid-career women is two and a half hours introduction. That's great. All right, Stephanie, we end our episodes by asking a very hard question. What is your leadership secret sauce? So I am a real, real visionary type of leader that come up with big ideas. And then I try and engage others with those ideas and try to think about creative possibilities. And I encourage others to think big as well. And I know that we oftentimes, most of the time, need to modify our thinking when reality sets in. Uh, but the big ideas create enthusiasm and usually move things further along than if we had stayed just with conventional thinking. Thank you so much for tuning in to the MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Huang. Special thanks to our guest, Stephanie Sonnevin, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like the show, please share widely with friends and family, or even leave us a review. You can also send us feedback and guest recommendations at podcasts at mitcnc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at M-I-T-C-N-C dot O-R-G. Hope you're staying safe and well, and thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time, we're the MIT Catalysts.